Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. I extend a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us this morning. And if you have a question about this church or about Unitarian Universalism, please feel free to ask. There are people at the visitor table whose job it is to answer any questions that you have to the best of their ability. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. These are the words of Susan B. Anthony. The older I get, the greater power I seem to have to help the world. I'm like a snowball. The further I'm rolled, the more I gain. In this room, we have Unitarian Universalists, and we have our roots in Judaism and Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, earth-based traditions, humanism, and more. One of the things that holds us together is our heritage and our history. And another thing that holds this congregation together is its mission, which we say together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. It is leadership season at First UU. The nominating committee is gathering applications for board positions, and that minister is looking for people to do all kinds of things, from watching over the flowers, um, the flower calendar, to being a a a five-hour-a-week volunteer coordinator. So if you want a little job or a big job, if you feel inspired, talk to me. And one of the ways that we look to feel inspired is by hearing from our church's leaders this morning. It's Donna Howard. Thank you, Meg. Uh, My name is Donna Howard, and I've been attending this church since 1976, having joined in 1979. And my first job here was with my husband, Derek, as leader of the LRY, or Liberal Religious Youth, the high school group. And as was often my experience, we got the job not by seeking it, but by showing an interest in the youth and then being asked by the outgoing leader if we would consider taking over her position. We did, and it was transformative for both of us. Just check out the Derek Loves Donna brick in the high school room if you get a chance sometime. But back to being asked to serve. You see, coming from my generation, I grew up with the challenge of not raising my hand in class, waiting until someone else answered the question that I actually knew the answer to, or volunteering for the job that I thought I could do, perhaps I even wanted to do it, and maybe even felt that I was better qualified to do it. Whether that was your experience or not, This church wants you to share your talents and gifts because it makes all of us better for it. And you can actually do this on your own without having to be asked. 
Over the past several decades, I've had the privilege of serving in many leadership roles here at the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, including as president of our board of trustees. Actually, I I noticed that uh, Jean Willis is here. The first time I was on the board, Jean was the president of the board, and I brought one of my babies to nurse through the meetings. But there are opportunities to serve even when you're nursing. Each opportunity to serve has strengthened my connections and broadened my friendships, often with people I would never have known had I not served with them in common effort on behalf of this church. Very much like the well-recognized saying from UU minister Robert Fulgham, who penned everything I know I learned in kindergarten, I can claim much of what I know about working well with others I learned in leadership roles in this church. Just like any family, we have our disagreements and quirky personalities, but we also have unconditional love for one another and a rich heritage of respect for our individual searches for truth within a community of seekers. How much better our world would be if this was how all systems operated. I invite you to think about how you would like to make our church a better place by offering to share your unique talents and skills and one of the many leadership opportunities that our church offers. I promise you that you will be frustrated, perhaps impatient, and maybe even periodically irritable. But I also promise you the lasting friendships that you will make the rewards of actually moving us forward in our mission and the ownership that you will feel as a vital part of this loving crowd of church family members will enrich your life as well as the lives of all of us. So please stop by the table that's somewhere out there. I don't know where it is exactly, but hopefully you'll find it. And that will show your leadership skills in and of itself. Uh, (laughs) after the service where someone from our nominating committee will be available to talk with you about how you can be part of our leadership team with gratitude. These are more words from Susan B. Anthony. I always distrust people who know so much about what God wants them to do to their fellows. Let us breathe together. Moving toward silence. Let us breathe deeply into the center of our being. Place where we speak to God as we understand God, or where we listen to our inner wisdom, or where we just find stillness following our breath. We open our hearts to those around us who are suffering, illness, fear, family trouble, financial meltdowns. We ask to step out of fix-it mode and into listening companionably with compassion. We hold in our hearts those who are joyful, 
And we are fully happy for them. We hold in mind those who are in harm's way because of war or natural disaster. In this stillness, may we find clarity and wisdom and compassion. You are invited to light candles of joy or sorrow or remembrance. Let us continue our meditation with the Buddha's loving kindness prayer or metta meditation. We say this three times. The first time we say it for ourselves. I'll say the line and you say it after me should you choose to. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. The second time we say it for somebody we love. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. third time through, we do something pretty hard as a spiritual exercise, which is we say this for someone against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. There was a group of women who uh, conferred together to make a woman's commentary on the Bible. They felt that the Bible had been used to undergird and uphold most of the laws that were unjust to women, um, and they decided to use scholarship, which was coming out of Germany, to really examine what the Bible actually said, even though most of them felt that it was not a book with much authority. These were American women. This was the 1890s. Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Olympia Brown, and many others, women who were Bible scholars women who were just rabble-rousers, social activists. If you look at the Woman's Bible, which is free online, by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you'll see the very first pages talk about the book of Genesis. And they talk about the two creation stories, two different creation stories, which are in 
the book of Genesis at the beginning. And they talk about the passage that says, and God said to God's self, as if there were more than one, as if they were conferring, let us make humanity in our image, male and female, they created them. So they said, it's right there at the very beginning If humans are made in God's image and half of them are male and half of them are female, then God is both. It's obvious. And that femaleness is equal to maleness. So what gives with all these laws about women not being able to own property and there being no divorce and uh, women not even having custody of their own children and... You guys teaching that women can't speak in public and can't um, do anything but rule queenly over their household. This is poppycock. So, just using a word from the 1890s. I hope. This would cause conversation... In any Sunday school class in Texas now, don't you think? Yeah. And so these women were doing this and published it, 1898. They were fearless. Or if they had fear, they covered it up really well. And they supported each other as they did this dangerous and controversial Work And this was not the only thing that they had done. This was long after they had already done many other outrageous things. I'm going to talk to you about Susan B. Anthony probably every couple years. Her birthday is February 15th. And so this being the day after her birthday, I just want you all to know about her. She is one of the saints in the Unitarian Pantheon. So if we have a shrine in our home with the people. I think I told you about my friend Greg who has a shrine in his home and Jesus is in the middle and Jimmy Carter is to one side and Bear Bryant is the other one. (laughs) So Susan B. Anthony is in my shrine. She was raised Quaker, but her family moved to Rochester when she was young and uh, her father signed the book at the Rochester Unitarian Church, and the whole family uh, attended there. Susan started out as a teacher and worked first. Her first activism was in the temperance movement. Now, a lot of people mock the Ladies' Temperance Society, but um, there was a Men's Temperance Society, too. Uh, They also mocked the Ladies' Temperance Society for different reasons. Um, but drunkenness among men was an enormous problem in those days, an enormous problem. You, um, you can read that per capita consumption of alcohol was about seven gallons a person per year, seven gallons a person. And you keep in mind that even though women were counted in that per person statistic, they mostly didn't drink. So 
that is an enormous amount of alcohol, and you you see the Dickensian um, photos, not photos, uh, drawings of um, young children going into the bar to try to fetch daddy out of the bar, and daddy is stumbling drunk. And there was a lot of violence against children and a lot of violence against women and uh, a lot of unemployment and terrible poverty that was exacerbated by this alcohol consumption. And so a lot of people felt that if they could only get people to drink less or not at all, that a lot of society's ills would be cured. Um, By the way, there was prohibition, as you know, in the 20s, and alcohol consumption did go way down. Um, It is only now back up to about seven gallons a person a year, but uh, women drink now too. I think most children still don't. So, um, Susan B. was born in 1820. Her, the B stands for Brownell, but she didn't like that. And, uh, so she just used B. And her dad was one of the elements in her life that allowed her to be so strong. He believed in education for his daughters. He believed in her. He loved her. He thought she was fabulous. His name was Daniel Anthony. So she had the experience growing up of what a good man could do for a family because her daddy was a good man. They were a Quaker family, and they believed that men and women could speak equally well and lead equally well, and women helped run the meetings, and they had a say in all the decisions. So Susan B. went to school, and she began to help teach um, after the school teacher in the town school refused to teach her long division. She wanted to know it. The school teacher said, you don't need to know it. You need enough reading to read your Bible and enough math to count your egg money. And you don't need long division for that. So she began to teach her own self. When she was 20, she took over the teaching job from the fellow who had been right before her. He had been paid $10 a week. She got paid $250. When she was 25 is when her family moved to Rochester and joined the Rochester Church. And I want to tell you, when you come to a Unitarian church and you begin to mix with the people, you meet people who change your life. And she met folks at the Rochester church who were abolitionists and the Rochester Unitarian church was a hotbed of abolitionist activity. Her family, uh, invited the abolitionists over and they would have, um, snacks and coffee and Frederick Douglass would speak and they, um, decided that they were going to spend most of their energy on abolition. And so she began to speak at the meetings on abolition. She spoke at teachers' conventions, arguing that boys and girls alike should be taught. Um, she said that was, there was not much difference in their brains. The doctors at the time were teaching that 
women's bodies had only a certain amount of energy and that whatever went to your brain did not go to the rest of your body. And so if you worked your brain too hard, you would not be able to have children. And they said, you want to teach women long division? What what next? You're going to teach your dog? What I want you to know is that the voices of the religious right have been saying the same stupid things forever. What next? Your dog is something that they have used over and over and over again. Now they're using it about marriage equality. What are you going to marry your marry your cows? <laughs> yeah. You can say the last time that was funny was in 1873. As with all social activism, there was a division among the activists. Are you surprised? And the division said. On one side, don't scare folks off by asking for too much all at once. And on the other side, it was, we need liberation now. I don't care if I scare folks. I want a revolution. In every socially active movement, there are both of these points of view. I have seen churches split I have seen peace groups have fights over this split. And Susan B., she was on this side, the revolutionary side. And she said, shall I tell a man whose house is on fire to get his children out moderately? Shall I tell a woman whose baby has fallen into the river to scoop it out moderately? No, our house is on fire. Our baby's in the river. We need to take it now. She still wasn't as radical as some folks. In 1848, she was 28 years old, they had the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, New York. She didn't go. Local media said that it was a hen convention attended by cranks, hermaphrodites, and atheists. Susan was a bit shocked to find out that all her abolitionist friends also supported women's rights. She was very happy to know. Um, They talked about uh, the brilliant Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was also working in the abolition movement. Her parents uh, and she became friends with Amelia Bloomer, who campaigned for more comfortable dress for women, um, wearing bloomers or dressing like a man, uh, which is what the clergy said, and said she was devilish. Devilish. (laughs) I'm wondering if it is a worthy goal by the end of your life to be called devilish by the religious right. (laughs) Let me know if you think I should go for it. Uh oh. <laughs> I'd say that's a mandate. <laughs> so, it, as I said, there was a men's temperance union, and um, 
Susan was in the Women's Temperance Auxiliary, they did go to that convention, the big temperance convention, and when she got up to speak, the men were horrified and said women uh, should not speak. The sisters, they said, are here to listen and learn, not to speak. Uh, Susan walked out of the room, followed by several other women, and they went down the street, got another hall, and spoke to each other. Uh, The place was cold, it was badly lit, the stovepipe broke in the middle of her speech, and yet the people's souls were satisfied. She and Elizabeth Cady Stanton met and instantly loved each other. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's uh, husband, Henry, said, You stir up Susan and she stirs up the world. Their partnership lasted their whole lives. Over 50 years, Susan would watch Elizabeth's children as she wrote her speeches. Um, Susan never did have children or marry, so uh, Elizabeth was somewhat slowed down (laughs) by having a family, household, husband, children. But Susan had a lot more freedom of her time and didn't have the responsibilities. So um, with the support of her family, she traveled all over the place, over rutted roads, in carriages, in the snow. She pushed herself hard. At the next temperance convention, they asked to speak. Clergymen stood up yawn, and said that they would not be allowed and that it was devilish, and um, they decided this time not to leave. They kept speaking. One delegate shouted that they were not women. They were some odd hybrid, half woman, half man. (laughs) Otherwise, why would they be acting like this? (laughs) Another man said they had no business disrupting temperance rallies with this side issue of women's rights, this dreadful doctrines of divorce and atheism. And um, Anthony had a, had a petition with 10,000 signatures that she had gathered, uh, and she tried to bring it to the front, but they closed around the women and bodily threw them out. Newspapers would attack her. As she traveled and spoke, they called her repulsive and ugly and said that if a man had had an interest in her, she wouldn't feel the need to do all this. They said she must have been neglected by men and therefore she was jealous and that she harbored a deep hatred of men. Somehow acting, asking for women's rights meant that you hated men? That is a logical leap, but they made it. She (laughs) voted in an election in the 1870s because she was not allowed to vote. She just wanted it now. So she went and voted, and she got thrown into jail, and she was tried, and she was convicted, and they didn't want her to say anything at her sentencing. Do you think she said something? Yes, she did. And part of it was... I will not pay one penny of your unjust fine. I agree with the old revolutionary maxim 
that disobedience to tyranny is obedience to God. Many of the suffragists working for women's right to vote were embarrassed by Susan B. and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and they felt that the women's Bible had really gone too far, and when they said that the Trinity was probably father, mother, son, uh, as that was a more natural family, they uh, shunned Elizabeth and Susan. So she didn't live to see women get the vote in 1920. But she said, failure is impossible. I've been struggling all week with what she meant. I don't know. It certainly seems that failure was possible for her. And yet, I think she must have trusted As Theodore Parker said, the arc of the universe bends toward justice. She must have trusted that eventually, if you work hard enough, it'll happen. It doesn't always. But if you're working for something just, it almost always does. We move toward justice if we're in a society that values justice. But even the people who are working against us think that they're working for justice. Failure is impossible. What does it mean? I think it is just a call to a long, slow effort in the same direction. Things do not happen fast, although for them to happen at all, we need the people who say they're going to have to happen fast. And we need the people who are embarrassed by the radicals because the people in power will talk to these people. The ones who say you should work from within the system. Both of them are right. And every movement has both. But for the movement to go ahead, the powers that be have to be scared of these people so that they will be motivated to talk to these people. Without these people, they'll be scared of these people. See what I'm saying? You always need Malcolm X for Martin Luther King to look reasonable to the powers that be. So here's what I've learned about social change from looking at Susan B. Number one, trust yourself. If something seems to you to be wrong, and if it seems to a good friend of yours or two also that it's wrong, then it's probably wrong. Two, get mad. Anger is a good fuel for action. Aristotle said, try to get mad at the right person or the right institution at the right time in the right way for the right reason. Check, 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 check. (laughs) Go for it. Two, work to change things and expect it to be a long, slow effort in the same direction. Don't just complain, because kvetching in the hall never did change anything. You have to work to change things. And the people in power will never just say, you know what, I'm tired of all this power. Uh, I think I'll give some of it to you. Never happens. Three, four, (laughs) lean on a friend. Have a team 
around you. Have people who support you. Have people who believe in you. You can't do it by yourself. Number five, know how things work. And here's how things work. Number one, they ignore you at first. Number two, they ridicule you next. They say you're ugly and that you hate things you don't hate and that you're jealous and whatever. Just go, oh yeah, there it is. There it is. Then they fight you. Then they agree. And later, they say they're with you all along. (laughs) Keep fighting. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. I know this rose will open. I know my fear will burn away. I know my soul will unfurl its wings. I know this rose will open. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org. Dot O-R-G.